Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Heart Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Valdry. For this episode, I'll be speaking to my friend, Stephen Adubato, who is the host of the podcast Cracks in Modernity. I met him actually at a Catholic conference event in New York. I was very drawn to his exhibit on Nietzsche and all of the ways in which, as he articulated it, a lot of our principles and themes in our post-postmodern world actually stem from and have roots in Nietzsche's thought, particularly around the process of making oneself, the process of making one's identity. Stephen actually pointed out, for example, how even though Judith Butler and Jordan Peterson have opposing ideas about, or opposing conclusions, rather, about identity, both of these figures' thoughts and philosophies are actually deeply informed by Nietzsche's concept of the making of the self. And speaking of making of oneself or making of the self, in this podcast, we talked a lot about identity, racial identity in particular, blackness, whiteness, what these concepts mean in the first place, and also what it actually might mean to deconstruct blackness and whiteness in the sense of, for example, formally self-identifying white Americans, getting more in touch with their Italian heritage, their Irish heritage, what that might look like for black Americans who... You know, many of us don't know what, what countries in Africa our ancestors come from. Um, so very, very interesting topics that we discuss around the very potent notion of identity. Um, we also spoke about how we might search for meaning, given the tenuous nature of identity these days, um, how we might grasp for meaning, how we find meaning in uh, traditionally religious containers, for example, and uh, what to do about that when Religious structures are sort of breaking down and changing and transforming and are just very liminal in nature. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. I had a very interesting conversation with Stephen, and I look forward to having more conversations with Stephen in the future. Tell my audience who you are. I know who you are, but like, why don't you take some time to tell people who you are and what you're into? And like, what are the interesting philosophical currents that are like compelling you to, I don't know, stay up late at night and... And, and think hard about things. Okay, so my background is in an undergrad. I did religious studies and Spanish literature, moved on to do moral theology. While mm-hmm. I was studying theology, though, there are a lot of classes where we looked at the history of ideas, like how our beliefs for different societies' beliefs have changed over time. And I found that that's what really sparked my interest. Like, how do ideas shape our history? How does history shape our ideas, our culture? And I decided, you know, I really want to focus on writing. And mm-hmm. also, you know, I do podcasting on the side about what are what are the, the main ideas that shape the way we live today, especially looking at pop culture. When we listen to music, is it just merely a form of entertainment or is it Is it expressing something about our commonly held beliefs? Mm -hmm. How is it influencing my beliefs in the way that I look at the meaning of the world around me? Mm -hmm. And that's like, this is my main kind of interest is in looking at the implications of this postmodern moment, or as some would say, the post-postmodern moment. Because Mm. for me, postmodernism is calling into question these these like very abstract certainties that enlighten the thought of... um, naively assumed to be true. Like if we start with Nietzsche, who's come 
of the father of postmodernism. He's saying, okay, like, why do we hold these, uh, these truths to be a hundred percent absolute? Like, how do we know that there are these, these certainties based on pure reason alone? Um, what mm-hmm. is reason, first of all? So what Nietzsche does is like he rips the, the rug out from under us and just tosses all these truth claims out the window and says, you know, I am only going to base my certainty on myself, mm-hmm. on my power, my strength, what I want to do with my life, which is a very radical thing. It's mm-hmm. a risky thing. I mean, can we really create our own truths? Can we make, can we define reality for ourselves? Yeah. By the way, sorry, just a pause. Do you know what in his life animated him in that direction yeah he grew up in a very religious family in germany Mm -hmm. who were lutheran protestants and his experience of lutheranism was very um very repressive like he Mm -hmm. he wasn't allowed to ask questions when Mm -hmm. he wanted to understand well why does the bible say this why do we Mm -hmm. believe this he was just told you know you just got to follow the rules yeah and that's why he said, you know, I don't want these certainties that are handed down to me without me actually um, having a real relationship with those truth claims. Sure. And, and his, but his attitude extended from rejecting religious truths to also scientific truths, like anything mm-hmm. coming from outside of the self. He's like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. Mm. And it's like when he says God is dead, it's not so much him rejecting God or self celebrating the end of religion like it's him saying okay we religion does not play the role that it once did in people's lives and we have to look for a new way Mm. to to seek meaning and i think the the other piece of this though is that like you could also take nietzsche's assertions to rediscover spiritual truths or to rediscover your relationship with whatever religion in a more meaningful way in a way that engages just your your questions or subjectivity so it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be this total outright atheism or secularism mm-hmm. i find that you know there's this great israeli rabbi named mika goodman who says that when you have an existential crisis there's two options you can either grow out of religion or you can grow your religion mm-hmm. and i went down the path of growing my religion and so now because i had a very similar experience where I bought in fully to the religious tradition that I was raised in and then had an existential crisis when I realized that but it didn't match up with reality. And I experienced depression and, you know, existential wrestling as a result. But where I landed up was a sort of larger non-theistic or like I would say post-atheistic conception of God, which is far more... It holds space for many different conceptions of, of God from many different wisdom traditions, Christianity, Judaism, Taoism, Buddhism, etc. Like I can see how each of these are different manifestations of the same sort of thing, if you will. And that works for me. I find it very difficult to conceptualize how nihilism would work for people. And perhaps I misunderstand nihilism because I do associate nihilism with Nietzsche, but it's like, I don't think that a lot of people who come to the atheistic conclusion actually end up going or tracking as far as Nietzsche did in his own atheistic conclusions. Yeah, because at the end of his life, he acknowledged that he wasn't completely satisfied with Mm -hmm. all of his, his assertions. And he said, you know, there's still this urge for truth, for something greater than myself that won't go away as much as I hate it. So like what's yeah. beautiful about Nietzsche is that he has all these big ideas, but he's also humble enough to say, maybe I was wrong. Like maybe yeah. I didn't get 
Right. Yeah. And you did an exhibit on Nietzsche and you showed how so many of our pop cultural icons from Kanye West to the Red Scare Girls have been recapitulating ideas that originated from Nietzsche. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, the the main premise is that, you know, we're told that we're living in this culture war between right and left, between tradition and progress. Whereas really in the U.S., like, uh, the main foundation of our culture is this enlightenment form of, uh, I guess, self-referentiality. Mm. And I think what's happened over time is that, you know, like I was saying before, the enlightenment is saying, you know, we can use our reason alone to find these truth claims. But what's happened is that now it's just like we are making our own truth claims. We are relying on ourselves. And it's Nietzsche who really articulates this as a philosophical, comprehensive worldview, we can mm. say. So even though Nietzsche was born in Germany, his thoughts really took root and started to blossom in the U.S. because we have such a, such an autonomous individualistic culture, which yeah. Yeah, Germany was still growing out of its Christian legacy. So, uh, yeah, sure, we have these deferring ideologies constantly clashing with each other in the U.S., but what they have in common is this, this sense that, like, I look to myself, I rely on mm. myself. Mm-hmm. So whether we're talking on the left about, you know, gender identity, the way that I want to define myself, you see that like the main gender theorists like Judith Butler are barring directly from Nietzsche to talk about, you know, the self-construed gender identity. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the right, if we take someone like Peterson, like Andrew Tate, who's talking about, you know, lifting yourself up by your bootstraps, you got to mm-hmm. take responsibility for yourself. Don't expect the state or charity to help you. You have to rely on yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's different emphases on which part of ourselves we're focusing on. But again, it's like it's we're looking to the self. Mm-hmm. And I think reading Nietzsche helps you to understand, okay, like there's a lot of overlap here, but also there, there are a lot of common pitfalls that mm-hmm. we need to look more deeply at, you know. What are some of those pitfalls? I mean, first of all, do I, can I really rely on myself to live a meaningful life? You know, because mm-hmm. I, if I'm honest, I know that I have a lot of limitations. I'm far yeah. from perfect. I keep making the same mistakes again. So if I'm only going to rely on myself, I know I'm not going to get very far. Mm-hmm. But also in terms of self-definition, like I didn't choose to be born. Like right. <laughs> when we believe in God, whether you believe in, you know, the universe, whatever, like existence is something given to you so if i'm gonna say my identity is whatever i construe it to be it's like yes i have free will but it's free will in relation to this mm-hmm. to this entity that gives me being you know mm-hmm. like there's there's this tension between me and the source of my existence that i have to be real about and you know, mm-hmm. i have to really take into account when i'm just trying to discover who i am yeah i mean one of the things i am sitting with these days is this real deep internalization of the fact that nothing is existing on its own. Nothing in the universe exists on its own. So like from a cognitive perspective, for example, I learned that around three years old, we internalize, we get our separate sense of self by internalizing other people's perception of us. So even the concept of a of myself, of who I am as a person is actually mediated by me interacting with others. And so it's been a bit of a delusion to actually think that I am 
merely an independent being in the strictest sense of the word. And I find that believing that can cause a lot of alienation, self-alienation, ironically, and an alienation from others as well. So I wonder if you've come across, like, is there a connection between alienation in our popular culture or the experience of alienation in a post-postmodern world and the failure to recognize that actually we're all living in an interdependent world? Mm, it's again, it's a matter of being honest with yourself, because if you look at your history, if you look at your life, you'll see that you know, number one, you didn't choose to be born. Mm -hmm. There are two people that brought you into existence, but also everything that you know, the fact that you know how to function in the world is the result of you relying on trusting other people. Mm -hmm. And I think what it comes down to is like, it's really hard to trust people. It's mm -hmm. hard to depend because people can hurt you. People may judge you, but okay, if we don't take that risk, then do, do is it really worth it living this super autonomous individualistic life? Sure, it's more, it's safer because, you know, there's no risk of being hurt, but can I be happy? Can I be mm -hmm. fulfilled? So it's, again, it's a matter of being honest with my experience, but also like, what do I really want? Like, what will make my life more full? Yeah, that's interesting. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you were posting on your Instagram recently. Can you share with us the context and then we can like tease a little bit of it out further? Yeah, so I, I would start by talking a little bit about my own history because my, my father's side of the family is Italian-American. My mother's side came to America a little more recently from Greece, Turkey, Armenia, a little bit of a mix. But I found like I... I was growing up in a very kind of bougie suburb where, you know, you had people with their whatever ethnic background, but it really was there's this sense of forced assimilation that mm. your ethnic roots don't really play a role in your identity, the way you express yourself, the way you spend your time. Um, it was this this kind of monolithic, like again, suburban ideal that I found to be suffocating because mm. when I was with my Greek grandparents, when we went to the Greek church, like you could see that there is this liveliness. There was this sense that you're part of something that has a history that's bigger than you. But when I went to school, like it was, yeah, it was dry and it was hard because, you know, I wasn't a hundred percent Greek. I didn't speak mm -hmm. fluently. So I wasn't totally accepted in the Greek community either. Mm -hmm. um, so it, what's the positive about this, this feeling like I wasn't fitting in culturally is it forced me to really ask these questions about, you know, who am I? What does it mean to belong to a culture? And it brought me to, to really look at the history of immigration in the U.S. and mm -hmm. how not just like the history, but also like the ideas, the beliefs that we hold to in America, like this ideal of, um, I don't know, like this goes back to enlightenment, that assimilation mm. is the ideal that we should all be the same, that we should all like follow um, this kind of monolithic cultural norm. Mm. It's just like that, like reading about all this from the philosophy to the history helped me to understand my identity struggles, my my emotional and spiritual struggles. And this has informed a lot of my writing, like really wanting to bring attention to the fact that when we're uprooted from whatever our heritage may be, yeah, it, it makes it harder to, to move in the world, to understand who we are and have meaningful interactions with others. So that's kind of the basis of a lot of the writing I've been doing lately. Well, first of all, I'm curious to know what more 
I guess, in the stricter sense, what is the connection between the Enlightenment and the sort of like assimilationist narrative that immigrants were told? That's number one. And number two, well, number two is I'll share a recent aha moment I had about my own uh, history being from New Orleans and growing up in a Protestant home in a deeply Catholic city. I'll share that with you after. But yeah. So yeah, the Enlightenment thing, again, there's this sense of wanting to seek these universal truth claims that Mm. don't rely on, how do I put this? They don't rely on particularities. Like in Mm. the past, evil times, you would have to rely on your community, your family to pass down stories, beliefs to you. You would have to rely on revelation from religion, whether that's a priest, whether that's the Quran. Mm-hmm. But there's this sense that something is mediating mediating these truth claims to you. Now we want to take out the middleman and the enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Like we want you to be this pure relationship with truth. My reason can apprehend truth without relying on people, religion, culture, any of that. Mm-hmm. So then we move to this this ideal of purity. You know, that's mm-hmm. where we get the Puritans that mm-hmm. you know if we rely on family relationships, on community, like it's messy, you know, that can obscure mm-hmm. our relationship with the truth. Mm-hmm. You also see this a little bit in Luther where he's saying, you know, like if we have priests with this kind of authority, you know, they can become corrupt, like also with indulgences, like there's mm-hmm. this fear of corruption. We want to keep this total purity, this absolute universal relationship with truth using our reason alone. And that's why like in America, this idea of the American dream, when you come here, you, you got to approve yourself. You have to conform mm. to this very genteel, very, you know, respect, quote unquote, respectable uh, mode of expression. Mm. Uh, because I don't know, like if you look at, say, for Italians, for example, Italians were not really accepted because, you know, they're, they're dirty, they're too boisterous, mm. they be violent, they're loud. And it wasn't until they started to assimilate that they started to present themselves as white, as we mm-hmm. not as they used the term then, mm-hmm. um, that they gained cultural acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, we could say the same about plenty of other ethnic groups who are a little bit more warm-blooded, who are from hot climates. Like it's uh, it's this very plain, very flat, very mm. respectable ideal that's become exalted in the U.S., but Again, it's and it's not to say that, you know, the people who propagated that idea who are mostly like Anglo-Saxons from Northern Europe. Like, it's not to say that their culture is invaluable, but it's even that, like even this this new ideal that we have in America, like even that is kind of bastardizing the Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. culture. Like it's not a full expression of it. You know? mm-hmm. Can you connect the I'm curious about the potential connection between the Italian-American experience, as you've described it, and existing controversies around Christopher Columbus Day. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there because yeah. Columbus Day was never about Columbus. That's the mm-hmm. thing that, again, our historical, lack of historical awareness, like it wasn't about him. Um, when, when Italians came here, they were considered to be Black mm-hmm. in a way. They really had, you know, were disrespected by the, the wasp hegemony. And there was a riot in, I think it was in New Orleans. Or in of all places. Louisiana. Yeah, <laughs> of all places in the mm. late 1800s when a group of Italians were lynched, mm. then riots ensued in the streets. And 
you know, just like really horrible violence. And some representative from Italy threatened the, I forget who the U.S. president was, but threatened, you know, like, if you don't take care of this, like, if you don't start protecting the Italians, we're going to have a war. Mm. So then, I really can't remember the president, but whoever it was said, okay, to try to gain a little bit more credibility for the Italians, we're going to start celebrating Columbus Day because mm-hmm. we have to celebrate how Italians have contributed to American culture. They're, you know, they're part of us because of Columbus. So more than anything, like Columbus Day became Italian Pride Day. Mm-hmm. What's very tricky, though, is that like blacks and Italians used to have solidarity. Like they would support mm. each other's businesses. They would protect each other from lynch mobs. But after Columbus Day, like, Italians could pass as white in right. a sense. You know, as long as they didn't act too Italian, they could be mm. accepted by the wasps. And one way that they gained the acceptance of Anglo, you know, Americans was to start vocalizing, you know, expressing racist sentiment towards blacks to say, mm. you know, we're not like them. You know, we mm-hmm. hate them just like you. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the beginning, it's like, no, like we we were together, you know, mm-hmm. we we shared a common struggle. So Fast forward to today with the issues with Columbus. So yeah, I mean, Columbus is a questionable guy. You know, he did some messed up things. But when you want to cancel Columbus Day, we have to realize you're not just canceling Columbus. You're canceling the history of Italian-Americans in this country. We have to grapple with the messiness, which, again, we don't like that in America. We mm-hmm. want purity. Because we want purity, yeah. Yeah, we want these clean-cut narratives, and it's not clean-cut at all. Yeah. And again, it's like... If we want to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day, which Indigenous people? There are many different Indigenous groups in in our country's history. So again, this monolithic, like, let's put all the Indigenous people into this one box, have a day for them. But that erases the particularity. So again, we don't have particularity either. We want just these nice, clean boxes. So I think there's a a lot of unpacking we have to do around these, these cultural discourses. There's a lot more to be said. Mm. So there's a paradox in that getting rid of Christopher Columbus Day in the name of fighting, let's say, racism is simultaneously uh, like erasure of Italian-American culture and erasure of something or policy that was implemented to assimilate Italian-Americans into the wider American culture. (laughs) Yeah, the, the, the wider American culture. Because yeah. it's supposed to, again, to like celebrate being Italian, but right. on whose terms? Right. You know, does that come with the cost of having to assimilate our culture? You know? Right. And this actually, there's a connection here between the... Oh, that's interesting. I'm thinking about this live. Okay, so there might be a connection between that move and the move with regards to, or that seems to be evident in shows like... Blackish and the propping up of shows like Blackish, it's like almost as if the establishment, and I think the word the establishment is a bit of a misnomer, but I'll just say it. And I don't mean it in any conspiratorial sense, but there are certain influences that will look at the incredible success and influence of national Black Lives Matter, the organization that happened in 2020, and then will further support shows like Blackish that portray a very specific way of being Black in America in order to simultaneously placate Black America and also say this is the only type of Black Americanism that we will allow for or foster or subsidize to the detriment of 
the non-conceptual way of being Black, which is simply, you know, defies words, defies like putting people into these conformist boxes and looks more like, I would say, shows like Abbott Elementary, historically shows like a different world, the Parkers, etc. And so there's this interesting, I can see the moves that you're describing also happening within, within Black America as well. Yeah, and then we see that if we look at, you know, if we look at the trajectory of Tyler Perry's films. Mm. But also what I was saying before about, you know, the Parkers and Monique, it's like it's this what we're seeing now is this this uprooted, mm. disincarnated, disenchanted ideal of black identity, which you know is is hyper politicized. Yeah. And there are plenty of good intentions behind it. You know, sure. I don't want to knock that, but like sure. it's ignoring the fact that blackness rises from a shared cultural experience which is embodied yeah yeah full of of relationships which are complex which are messy yeah but also the particularity that what i was saying about you know if you're black from the south versus from new york versus from the midwest like there are different manifestations it's not monolithic at all yeah. Yeah. And we, we're not seeing that expressed as much right now in pop culture. Yeah. I was just back home in New Orleans and I grew up in a, a very psychedelic, uh, I would call it, religious tradition. I grew up as a Christian observing Jewish holidays in a deeply Catholic shell, shellfish loving city. So I didn't eat pork or shellfish and I observed Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and I was a Christian who went to church on Saturday. So deeply Protestant, but not in the traditional Protestant sense of the word, because obviously, generally speaking, Protestants still celebrate Christmas, but I did none of those things. And I was just think I was back in New Orleans and I was thinking about how I experienced a profound sense of alienation and I didn't have the language to articulate it at the time when I was younger, when I was going through these experiences, but I, it is an incredibly alienated experience to grow up in a city, but have your religious identity condition you to go against the mores and the culture of that city. And so imagine like living in a home and then being conditioned to be anti-home. Uh, that's a, a profoundly alienating experience. It's also a profoundly teaching experience, right? It's a profound teaching experience because you learn how to, like, what are the ins and outs? What are the margins of society and how margins are constantly shifting and they're not this, like, objectified thing. I have a very insider-outsider relationship uh, or sense of identity as a result of growing up in this way. But I bring this up because you talked about feeling uprooted and being uprooted. And I was having a conversation with someone the other day about New Orleans and about like, you know, New Orleans is a super like French, Spanish, Black, Native American, just like interesting gumbo of a city. And it's super, super oriented around drinking. So it's got a heavy, heavy drinking culture. And I'm not drinking this year. So I was back home. And when you're not drinking and you're just, you're in a culture that, that revolves around drinking, you notice how prominent it is. And I was, I started asking myself, like, is this, has this city been coping with something for the past, for like, I don't know, 200 years of its existence? And I was talking to a friend about this and he said, you know, when I was in New Orleans, I went on these ghost tours and these ghost tours in New Orleans were all about how like shit went down in New Orleans in certain homes with regards to how people were treating slaves, how people were treating non-slaves and, and how the ghosts of these 
individuals are still like haunting houses and stuff like that. And I was thinking about all of this. And New Orleans is also a very humid, like swampy place. You go outside immediately, you start sweating, right? The thickness of the place is palpable. And then I started to think to myself, and I'm totally making this up. This is just a question I'm asking, but I'm like, did my parents subconsciously pursue this kind of like Protestant pursuit of knowledge in its own way for sure like because because they were super interested in like where does Christmas come from and like where do all these things actually originate right were they pursuing this as a way to orient themselves or anchor themselves such that they would be able to overcome or transcend the hugeness that is New Orleans and like everything that comes with it. And I don't know the answers to that question, but like I was able to see both the beauty and the terror of all of that. Uh, and I, I'm just wondering how that lands for you. Yeah, because I think there's something, clearly there's something very painful about feeling alienated, like knowing yourself to be different. Yeah. But it does allow you to have very deep insights about what's going on around you. And I feel mm -hmm. like the... So here's a pop culture reference. Like this is one of the big themes you see in Mariah Carey's music. Mm, okay. You know, it's sad because <laughs> she's dismissed as this, you know, this gaudy pop star. But I, you know, I am as what they call a lamb. I'm a Mariah <laughs> stan. Like she's nice. a deeply insightful songwriter. You know, mm -hmm. in addition to being having great vocals, like well, at least in the past, she had great vocals. I don't want to get today. <laughs> But no, like her songs are about this experience of, of being on the outside looking in. And it mm -hmm. started with being mixed race because her father is black with Venezuelan origin and her mother mm -hmm. is Irish and they were divorced. That's another thing of, you see that in the psychology of children of divorce, that there's this sense that like you're, because you're constantly trying to navigate between two different worlds. Like mm. you're never inside one world. Yeah. That's another thing. But also she's an artist, you know, she's, she looks at the world through this poetic lens in a way that not everyone does. So there are several songs about, like there's this song called the outside where she mm. says, no, early on I could sense that I, I never fit in and I kept trying, but then maybe you resign yourself to accepting maybe you weren't made to fit in. Like maybe mm. it's divinely ordained that you're meant to be on the outside so that you can comment on what's going on inside. And I like I found that over time I came to relate to to a lot of her songs, not just because I like the way they sound, but because I am someone who feels like I'm constantly on the outside and that I have mm -hmm. a calling to use that to speak about what I see happening. Mm -hmm. um, and you see that also with philosophers like Kierkegaard was very big on this, that he like he felt just because of his temperament, his personality, he was alienated from mainstream culture. Mm. And it allowed him to say a lot about what was going on. So there's, there's like, yes, it's, it's a heavy thing at times. It can hurt, but it truly is a gift because mm. it saves you from the emptiness of conformism. It saves you from becoming that and just doing what everyone else is doing. Mm. But I, I want to ask you though, like, why is it? Because you could have tried to conform, like, also with your career, with the, the kind of work you're doing, like you could have just gone for the mainstream discourse that everyone else is capitalizing on. Like, so what enabled you to stay true to your unique experience, your unique beliefs, rather than just trying to follow, go with the flow of what everyone else is, is talking about or doing? 
Well, perhaps ironically, within the religious tradition that I was raised in, there is this sense that you should be curious about, you know, what people are telling you, questioning people, questioning authority, questioning, you know, just because someone says that this is the way it's always been since the beginning of time. Uh, Implicit in the experience of sitting in my living room every December 25th and studying the writings of Emperor Constantine was this sort of understanding that like, actually, no, that's not true. (laughs) Things have things have origin stories, things are constantly moving and shape shifting. And so I would say, ironically, I wanted to stay true because that's what I was taught to do in the religious tradition that I that I grew up with. And also it's just, I think that the world is just far more interesting and far more enchanting than we get it, give it credit for. You just have to know that you should look for it in the first place. And it can be scary to look for it because you're not, you're going to experience that alienation. You're going to experience that not belong, that sense of not belonging. But you can also, I mean, in my experience, I, I felt such a sense of rapturous joy and, and awe and wonder the more I learn about like how things are connected. And even in my, you know, my field where I'm often talking and combating, if you will, the mainstream DEI rhetoric, diversity, equity, and inclusion rhetoric that exists. But at the same time, like I, I recognize how a lot of the grappling within mainstream DEI is itself a yearning for the kind of embodied mm-hmm. way, like ethnic, if you will, way of being that has been... Enchanted way, though. Yeah. Like the name fits. Yeah, 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 yeah. A very, exactly, a very enchanted way of being that has been stripped away in our post-postmodern world. Like, I am struck by the fact that perhaps this is one of my hottest takes in the <laughs> in this topic, but, like, have you seen those posters that came out in 2020 where people were, like, making fun of whiteness and they were saying, like, white whiteness is worship of the written word and they included worship of the written word in that? I am 100% certain that despite the absolute nonsense that is that is captured in that on a superficial level if you look at that more deeply what people are yearning for is a return to a living relationship with reality and and i'm reading a book right now called spell of the sensuous by david abram which talks about many beautiful things it's an incredibly beautiful book one of the things he talks about is where language comes from and the alphabet and the alphabet and how You know, if you look at the letter A, for example, the letter A originally was a pictorial representation of an ox. So when when you turn the A to the side, it's actually an ox with the horns uh, pointed upwards. And so the the letters that we use and that we write down and that we read were originally emergent from the real living world. And he also taught, he confirmed something that I always felt to be true, which was that Homer, which was existing in a pre-literate Greek society, right? Homer was essentially a Greek rapper, right? Homer's The Odyssey, Homer's The Odyssey was like recited orally, which is why you see so many repetitious phrases in Homer's The Odyssey. When you read it on paper, it was meant to be recited. So I say all that to say, just like you're able to point out the overlap between like Judith Butler and Jordan Peterson and how there's a similar similar belief system underpinning both of their statements. I think that there is a deep yearning, actually on both the right and the left, 
in the world of DEI that is yearning for a re-enchantment of the world, but is like misfiring in the way that it's being presented by both of these groups. Yeah, yeah no, because first of all, about, you know, rapping and uh, Homer, Camille Paglia has a in- very interesting piece tracing mm. the trajectory of Western music and how rap is a manifestation of a lot of like classical modes of rhetoric that, mm. you know, back to Socrates. So I mean, so much for the dead, old, dead white man. But- right. Right. Is this something, there are certain recurring archetypes that we see, mm-hmm. you know, but no, but in terms of DEI, like, I think there's also a, a deep desire to recover our roots. And I mm-hmm. think it's like you're saying, it's misfiring. It's doing it in a way that doesn't really accomplish the goal. But when I see people saying, you know, like we have to dismantle these modes of whiteness, there's something true there because, mm-hmm. and I would say that it's more than anything, like we want to dismantle these these like monolithic enlightenment kind of ideals yeah. because the same in the same way that a lot of people of color may feel like those ideals are oppressive. Like as someone with Mediterranean roots, sure, I may be white passing in today's day and age, but I find that that cultural ideal mm. oppresses the expression of my heritage and the ideals of my culture. And there's a, again, there's a need to return to the particular. Like we don't want these abstract. You know, like I want to be part of my history, whether that's tracing your origins to the the West African slave trade, whether it's Mm -hmm. to the the Mediterranean, whether it's to Latin America, whatever. Like it gives us meaning to be part of a bigger story. It it Mm -hmm. enchants our sense of identity and our experience of reality. And I think like what's interesting about theory of enchantment, when I first heard your interview on, I think it was persuasion. Mm -hmm. What struck me is that like I seeing a lot of people who are super reactionary saying, oh, look at DEI, look at all, you know, how it's, it's full of these, you know, full of ideology, these, these faulty claims. So we should just toss it all out the windows, screw sure. the left, screw the woke culture. But what you're doing is saying, okay, yeah, there's a lot of problems here, but how can we tap into what's true and really foster that, you know, really build that up? Yeah. And that, that's the issue I'm seeing with, like, the reactionary politics right now is that it's deeply conformist. Like, it's mm. not contributing. Like, it, it may react against the mainstream, but it's, in a way, it's conforming to the mainstream by not offering something innovative and, and new. Mm. You know, that's, again, like, that's what kind of gave me hope when I saw what you were doing. Because it's not saying, oh, chuck the EI out the window. It's, yeah. let's let's make a version of this that really values what's meaningful about yeah. this, this phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, one of my critiques of Ibram Kendi, who's a sort of, I don't know, shaman. Perhaps he hasn't actually earned that moniker. I'm not going to say that. He's not a shaman. He's he's more like a, I don't know, he is a professor of DEI. Is, is this point that you made about, like, the Black experience in Louisiana is very different from the Black experience in New York. And in fact, the Black experience in New Orleans is different from the Black experience in Baton Rouge, right? And so the more you zoom in, the more fractal it actually becomes. And you can never actually fully grasp or pin down what is. And this is, I think, one of the things that's sort of another blind spot of the Enlightenment, which we talk about in the Theory of Enchantment sort of framework. It's like the scientific pursuit of absolute certainty 
Yes. That entire frame ends up producing a lot of alienation. Number one, because you fall out of love with the mystery inherent in being alive. And that is really what leads to disenchantment, ultimately. And that also explains the the deep desire to conform and to put everything in boxes and to say, like, everything is this category and it has to be this category because if it's not this category, then it undermines my entire heuristic with which I understand and move about and navigate the world. And so, like, all of these things are connected and we are, it seems to me, like, starving and dying because, at least philosophically, if not literally, because we have not corrected our relationship with the unknown, both within and without. Yeah, no, and that's, uh, I think that's what's needed most of all is to, to broaden the scope to read this comprehensive narrative of my identity that mm-hmm. doesn't just reduce me to one of these these boxes I can check off because as you, as you say, in theory of enchantment, like my his, my identity is a reflection of not just the color of my skin, my culture, but also, you know, where did I grow up? What was mm-hmm. my relationship like with my parents? Um, mm-hmm. What are my interests, my passions? You know, it's, and that goes back to this, this issue of purity versus the messiness mm. of the human condition. If I want to encounter another human as they are, then I do need to look at the whole picture the whole story which is going to take time and may mm-hmm. there may be certain things i don't like or i don't understand about the other and then that's where we see allyship is much more than you know like posting something on instagram sure. about whatever identity group it's really taking the time to attempt to understand and and confront disagreements or conflicts when they arise sure and knowing that like conflict is not not necessarily the end of a relationship. Like you don't have to cancel someone from your life because there's a disagreement or they do something to hurt you. Like there's the possibility to talk about it, to mm-hmm. to attempt to resolve it. You know, like that that's been the biggest thing for me personally, like learning how to develop those skills of conflict resolution, mm. of forgiveness, you know, like that's that's super crucial at this point in time. I think. Yeah. Do you think that the American project is doomed given our Puritan origins? I have. Like, it depends on my mood. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I have this sense that, like, the Enlightenment project, yeah, like, it's a faulty ideology. It's built to fail. Um, so what is, so does that mean we should like create, try to create like a religious, a monarchy? Should we <laughs> have a, a anarchy? I don't know. I mean, I'm not, my, my whole thing is like, we need to look at the local. That's mm-hmm. my priority. Um, we need to build up local communities, local politics, create uh, meaningful relationships with our neighbors. Yeah. Whatever's going to happen on the federal level, I don't know. And I'm I'm going to leave it to other people to figure that out. But I think the everyday person does need to invest themselves in the local because that's, um, that's the most concrete. That's the most mm-hmm. available to us. So I think the discourse has to shift a little bit to the, yeah. Yeah. to what's near to us. I recently thought about the irony of someone like waving the banner, waving a banner that says like, I don't know, decolonize your mind. And then that person doesn't know their neighbor or they yeah. they like litter on their street. And it's like, you're telling people to decolonize their mind, but you have no local sensibility. Your, your sensibility is actually like empire oriented <laughs> in the way that you see things. The neighbor thing, like, 
I see how much I struggle with that because you yeah. know, I say this out loud. I say, yeah, we have to focus on the local. We have to encounter people. But I find that I'm afraid to approach my neighbors sometimes because. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's unpredictable. You know, sometimes I feel like I lack the social skills to do it. So it's. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I, I definitely see that it's worth putting a lot of my energy into that very simple thing. Yeah. As opposed to, again, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not innocent here. Like, I'm always theorizing, posting things on the internet. But sure. at least I can tell you, hey, but there's a cognitive dissonance here. Like, I know I need to work on my relationship skills and being more involved in my local community, my neighborhood. If, yeah. if we could all, like, I think that's another thing, though, like, we should aspire to be honest. We should aspire to say, hey, like, I'm not as integrous as I hope to be. Yeah. And I, I do want to improve. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And no, I try to say good morning to my neighbors every day, when at least when I see them. I also, like, recently started to go to my local coffee shop, like, not every day, but almost every day. And I have a rapport with the baristas there who work there and I know some of their names not all of their names working on that one but yeah when you're conditioned in a culture or by a culture because of the internet that sees globally it can take a long time to retrain yourself or recondition yourself to see what you actually are which is local <laughs> yeah and that, that is a form of social progress like it's not purely mm. economic or power dynamics and it's these small experiences of meaning mm -hmm. that do change our um i don't know do change our way of living that like yeah i don't know like there there are things that are immeasurable that I, that are part of that should be part of the the discourse on like social progress it's interesting though because there's this understanding in uh certain areas of psychology that says that if you experience something, let's say like alienation over and over again, then that's very familiar to your nervous system. And it will be harder for you to actually condition yourself to seek the opposite, let's call it a feeling of home, <laughs> because you're so used to feeling alienated. And I find that that's true for me. Like I, when I have moments of connection where I will let's say, make eye contact with someone who is like in the coffee shop or my neighbor or someone like that. And it's a brief moment in time. And let's say we, we say good morning. That does something to my nervous system, often, not always, that feels uncomfortable because I'm not used to it. And so the barrier to seeking something beyond alienation is perhaps not large, but psychologically large, for sure. Because just the, my nervous system is not used to having that experience. Yeah. No, and it's, um, I wonder though, like what enables you to not react and um, draw away from that, uh, that new experience, that, that risk that you're taking? Like what, what helps you to, to keep going and keep taking that risk? Theory of enchantment. <laughs> It's like I created that subconsciously to work on myself because something in me also yearns for the embodied local communal way of being. Uh, and this is also probably why I, I, I gravitate towards music and dance so much. That's why I love Afro House, which we spoke about earlier a little bit. Um, I am an amalgamation of, you know, this Protestant work ethic plus this African sensibility in terms of being 
in relationship with music and the earth and this also global-minded framework that I have in being a middle-class American in New York City with a company trying to make an impact on the world. So I have all these different things that are a part of who I am. And now that I'm saying it out loud, yes, there's this sense of alienation, but there's also this yearning for home that I also have that I move towards. Yeah, and that's um, what's also interesting about like our disenchanted cultural discourse today is that it obscures the the commonalities between certain forms of art, specifically music. Because like mm. I like I I've read a lot about like music history, both pop culture, like popular music, but also like more traditional folk forms of music, and I mm-hmm. found that. You know, like when I was little, I gravitated towards like contemporary R&B mm-hmm. and I didn't know why it just sounded good to me. Yeah. And as time went on, I started to see like, OK, what are the origins of R&B? It comes from the spirituals of the enslaved peoples. Mm-hmm. But that also that music form was combined with, you know, Scottish forms of folk music that mm-hmm. eventually turned into like blues and, and rock early rock and roll. But that even like even the the gospel spirituals were borrowing from certain certain like motifs within Mm. West African, but also like East African, Middle mm-hmm. Eastern music. And then mm-hmm. that traces its way to Greece, who, you know, in Greece, they borrowed a lot of their music from the Turks because they were enslaved by them for so many mm. years. It's like there are all these connections that we can find that speak to like these certain shared metaphysical traits that we have as human beings. And I, I don't know, like when I see people clamoring over, you know, like this person is appropriating whatever mm-hmm. music it's like sure there are certain artists who are doing too much like yeah. being annoying <laughs> like yeah we're forgetting that i don't know like music is because it's so metaphysically charged it doesn't fit into our human categories the way we want it to but yeah, yeah. Like, we, we want it to be we don't want it to be messy like that yeah and that's what's beautiful about so much of the popular music today like it there's so much spiritual depth to it that speaks mm-hmm. to the history of our, you know, of our culture, like the the roots, you know, mm-hmm. like it brings mm-hmm. us back to discovering our roots, whatever our ethnicity may be. Yeah. So I have a question. I have a, I have a proposal rather. I We're developing this new card game at Theory of Enchantment and we can play a little bit if you'd like. I'll just tell you the premise. Basically, there's like 30 cards and each card is meant to get you to play a game with your we're calling them buddy. So with your buddy and you're basically revealing something like vulnerable, deeply human about yourself to each other. There's a few numbers that actually won't work within this format because they're hardware specific. But if you pick a number, we can see if we if, if it has a prompt that that will work for us. So pick a number one through 30. I'm going to pick two. OK, so the name of this game is defensive or curious question and here's the game describe a time where you felt under attack or you felt the need to be defensive that's the first part and then describe a time where you felt like you could be generous and curious and it could be about anything it'd be about your work life your personal life whatever you want i can go first you can go first how do you want to how do you want to go first okay because you proposed that you're going to go first Okay, so describe a time I felt under attack or felt the need to be defensive. Okay, so the other day I was on Twitter and I was promoting Theory of Enchantment and I like 
talked about how people could buy the curriculum. They could enroll in the curriculum because it's a company. So it's a for-profit company. And someone responded basically by accusing me of not having pure intent. There's that purity piece, not having pure intentions because it's a company and it makes money. And I immediately felt defensive and like I wanted to like defend myself. And when I feel defensive, I feel like I, I feel the opposite of openness. Like I can't be open. Like I have to protect myself and guard myself. And not only did I feel defensive, but when I feel defensive about something that someone has said online, I constantly go back to check to see if they've responded to what I said, because like, I want to prove that I am right and prove that I'm like good to go. Okay. So that's a time I felt defensive recently. And a time I feel like I could be generous or curious. I mean, I feel pretty generous and curious right now in this conversation with you, but I guess I could be a bit more specific. Oh, so when I was in New Orleans, I stayed with my sister, which was the first time I stayed with my sister, not with my parents. Okay. And then, which was the right thing to do. So when I, (laughs) when I saw my parents, I felt way more like calm and at ease because I didn't have to stay at my parents' house. I could like pop in and pop out. And I feel like I had a better anchor with which to navigate being with my parents because my parents have a very specific like way of viewing how you're supposed to do life versus how you're not supposed to do life. And when I'm in that environment, sometimes I can feel defensive, right? Or feel like I have to be on guard. But because I stayed with my sister, I didn't feel that way. Or I didn't feel that as much. I felt way more open and at ease and just like playful and also like willing to be real and show up in a real way and say how I really felt about things with my parents because I could simply leave. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Wow. There's something about... I don't know, like, as time goes on, how our relationship with our parents matures and how having distance can enable us to become more intimate in a way or to, like, have a deeper connection. Yeah. So my defensive is actually related to how I met you. So funny story. So for the New York encounter, we start planning it way in advance. So I remember last year, somebody said, we do want to talk about DEI because it is such a big deal in our culture right now. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people got up and just started saying like super negative things, saying Mm -hmm. DEI is BS, it's all ideology. And because naturally I'm a contrarian, I decided to become (laughs) oppositional. And I'm like, you guys are BS. Like you understand that like there is a reason why DEI exists. Like it's not coming out of nowhere and to just dismiss it is to like it's you know you're not taking seriously the implications and i was gonna like write a very nasty email to Mm. some of the people involved (laughs) about how you know they're being ignorant and i was like wait why am i doing that and what is Mm. what is the goal Mm -hmm. i'm doing it to kind of affirm myself and how self-righteous i am But also, it's not going to achieve the goal. It's just going to piss them off. Like yeah. It's not going to lead to a fruitful you know, discussion that may change the course of how we're going to do this. So I decided to open up to one of the, my friends involved. And I was like, hey, you know, I wanted to share with you some of my experience with DEI because I see how there's a lot of reductive elements of it in the way identity and social issues is discussed. But I also have a lot of friends who have benefited a lot. Mm-hmm. Because it does raise important questions about how people from different backgrounds are treated 
or spoken to in the workplace or in the school or whatever. And my friend was like, okay, this is interesting. Like, tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we started discussing who should we invite to talk about it. We went through a whole list, but eventually, you know, I found that interview with you on persuasion and we're Mm -hmm. like, you know, this is exactly what we're trying to get at. So it started out as defensiveness, but then it was like, okay, let's, let's be a little bit more, uh, realistic about, you know, what, what do I really want here? So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm happy that I broke down the defensive wall and that here we are having this discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. With curiosity, I would just say like my experience in the world of education in general, I love sitting in on a class of like a, a master teacher, someone who's been doing it for years because like, I become so curious to understand, like, how have you developed these methods? How is it that you Mm -hmm. are able to engage your students so well? And I I love having a follow-up discussion after just, you know, to ask all those things and just try to find what what bits and pieces can I take from your approach that I can improve Mm -hmm. mine. So, yeah, I just love watching a teacher or or professor who really knows what they're doing and and learning from them. I love that too. I yeah, one of my mentors, John Verveke, I discovered him through his Awakening from the Meaning podcast, which has both an audio component and a YouTube component. And I watched the YouTube component. I was like, what is <laughs> what is happening? This is a whole new world. It's so cool. Well, awesome. Thank you for indulging me a bit and uh playing that playing that game. It's a new thing that we're we're testing out and we're trying to spread. So this is the first time I've I've actually played the game on the podcast. Oh, so. awesome. No, that's yeah. it's a cool idea. That's it's an interesting question to ask. Yeah. Any last things that you want to promote? Where can we find your work? Where can we follow you? So you can follow my Substack. It's Cracks in Postmodernity. Yeah. Uh, my Instagram is at Cracks in Pomo. Twitter is Stephen G. Adubato. Yeah, and my my podcast is available Spotify, Apple, YouTube, all the all the platforms. So check it out. I'm hoping to have Chloe on my podcast <laughs> as well. It's something soon keeps the discussion going. But yeah, check out all the all the platforms. Awesome. Yay to cross-pollination. We're definitely going to make that happen. And hopefully we'll be able to do it in person. Yes, that'd be the goal. That'd be very cool. All right. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. It's been a real privilege and pleasure. I always get a little excited and also intimidated when I'm speaking to someone who is as like eager and excited by philosophy as I am. So (laughs) I really appreciate you coming on. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chloe. 